always dreamed about being a doctor, but um, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. But you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. And that's going to be my way to serve. Well, I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. They're saying you could go to prison. But I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. Please, Lord, help me get one more. Help me get one more. The movie Hacksaw Ridge is based on a true story of Private First Class Desmond Doss. Now, Doss is, was a Seventh-day Adventist who is a pacifist a conscientious objector, someone who holds an anti-killing stance even in the context of war. And so in his story, he enlists in the army during World War II but refuses to carry a gun. He wants to serve as a medic and uh, touch the lives of others through that means. And so he's posted at a place called Hacksaw Ridge during the Battle of Okinawa And during that battle, Doss personally, single-handedly, saved 75 injured men without firing one shot by dragging them to the edge of the Maeda escarpment and one by one lowering them by a rope down to the safety of the camp below. He was the first conscientious objector to ever win the Congressional Medal of Honor, which was, is the highest award of valor given to an individual serving in the armed services of the United States. When you follow his story, what you are gripped with is how his deep-seated values shaped how he lived every aspect of his life. And how those values cemented his commitment to what he believed. He was unshakable. Now, today we are beginning a four-week series entitled Unshakable. And this series centers around Jesus and the testing of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And this series is actually a precursor or a setup to a series that we're going to be doing in the fall, which we have entitled Living the Mission. And so for this particular four weeks, our theme is simply this, if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. Now that makes sense. If we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. Our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to the mission of Jesus is is cemented through seasons of testing. 
times when we stand against the distractions of the enemy and the hardships of life, and we stay focused on our purpose. This morning, I just want to read the first two verses of Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Satan's purpose in this passage is to get Jesus to depart from his mission. So that the mission of God, which was to restore lost humanity back to Him, for that mission to fail. Now, I want us to note that Satan knew and understood to his core what the mission of Jesus was. And he doesn't want Jesus to complete his mission. He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross because he knows that if Jesus goes to the cross, the cross is the only means, it is the gateway for God's salvation mission to be accomplished, to be possible. And so the enemy knows that and his purpose is to attempt to distract Jesus from his mission, from the cross. He wants Jesus to take his rewards by bypassing the cross, by bypassing God's plan and God's mission. And as we read through this, we'll see that Jesus will have none of it. He's unshakable. And I believe that this passage reveals a lot to us about the character and the methods of Satan and his attempt to distract us from the mission. I believe that this passage gives us an insight into how Satan will try and distract us from our mission, the mission of Jesus that we've been called to, God's plan for us at this time in our world, in our lives. And so we have to be aware of his tactics. We have to be completely committed to the mission. We must be unshakable unshakable. Now, the next three sermons after this one, we're going to consider each of the three tests or attempts of the enemy to distract Jesus, and we'll look at how he did that. But in this first week, I want us to lay the groundwork for the series by considering what is taking place leading up to this momentous occurrence in the wilderness. What takes place prior to the testing, is going to give us some valuable insight to help us understanding testing as a whole. And so I want us to quickly look at three things that are happening here just before Jesus is tested in the wilderness. I want us to look at his baptism. I want us to look at the genealogy of Jesus. And I want us to look at the leading of the Holy Spirit into this time of testing. So the first thing I want us to look at is the baptism of Jesus. I'm not going to read Luke 3, 21 to 23, but if you want to look at it, you'll find the baptism occurrence there. As we read earlier in Luke, the birth of Jesus and the birth of John are both announced in Luke chapter 1. But this is the first time that we see them together in Luke's gospel. They're now grown men, 
and we see them together. The Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would someday come, and John has the privilege on this particular day, on this particular moment, of announcing that the Messiah has come. It's no longer something they're looking to in the future. The future is here now. And so John's responsibility was to prepare the nation of Israel to receive the Messiah. And that preparation was going to come through repentance of turning their hearts back towards God and receiving God's Messiah. And John is making great progress. His ministry is just expanding. And so the Messiah is ready to come on the scene. In this passage, there are a lot of people around. They're out in the wilderness. John is preaching. Obviously, his ministry is powerful because they've gone out there to hear him preach. And so, as he's preaching, many are being baptized. And it's in this context that Jesus appears on the scene. Jesus is now ready to assume his public ministry. And he comes to John in this context, in this moment, and he requests that John baptize him. Now, John's baptism represented repentance. And we know from Scripture that Jesus is sinless. Jesus didn't need to repent. Therefore, there's no need of Jesus to be baptized. And so this is a bit of a confusing moment. And John is at first refusing to do it because it doesn't really make sense. But there are some things that make this that baptism important and even necessary. First, Jesus is identifying with those he came to save. He said he came for the lost, for the sinful, for the sick. And so he's identifying by being baptized with those who are the focus of his mission. Secondly, we know that later down the road he's going to die on the cross And he's not going to die with his own sins, but he's going to take the sins of all humanity upon himself. And so in this moment, we have a foreshadowing that this sinless Son of God is going to take sin upon himself in order to redeem all humanity. And thirdly, what we see here is that an understanding that baptism itself flowed out of Jewish ceremonial washing rituals, and that ceremonial washing rituals in Scripture always indicated a new beginning. And so the start, and the, this is the start or beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so it's, it's important that something like this happen to mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, baptisms are never ordinary. They're always really special. But the baptism of Jesus is, is more unique than normal. Than usual. They're all unique, but his is, if there's such a thing as more unique, is more unique. Probably isn't technically such a thing as more unique, but we're told that Jesus was praying during his baptism. He often did that before and during important moments. And as he's praying, if you can imagine, the heavens open. And there's what we call a theophany, a tangible appearance of God. In the Old Testament, God appeared in a cloud, in light, in fire, and in wind. And in this particular moment, the the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form 
like a dove. There's a visual of God that is happening in this moment. And then there's this, God follows that up with speaking. God also spoke and He says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So you have this visual of God, but you have this audio of the voice of God, and what God is saying are the words taken from Isaiah 42.1, which is a prophecy of the someday coming Messiah, which says, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. And so, in God speaking these words, He is, he is affirming to those who are standing around who are familiar with this prophecy, they know what's going on here. They know what's happening. This is a significant moment. God is confirming by His voice that this is His Son, this is the promised one, and those who were there could see what was happening and they could hear what was happening. So we have Jesus who was supernaturally conceived by the Spirit, then born of a woman becoming flesh so that he could save us, now in this moment at the beginning of his ministry, it's necessary for the Holy Spirit to empower him, to anoint him for earthly prophetic ministry. Jesus begins his ministry anointed by the Holy Spirit. The word Christ means anointed one. And so when we say Jesus Christ, what we are saying is Jesus, the anointed one. And so here in this moment, in his earthly ministry, it is in this moment that he becomes the Christ, the anointed one, as the Spirit descends upon him at the beginning of his ministry. Now, all throughout Scripture, we see from beginning to end that you have to be anointed by the Spirit to lead and perform, and to work for God. And in the Old Testament, God's representatives would come and they would anoint the leaders symbolically with oil representing the Spirit, and then the Spirit empowered them for the ministry, and they carried out that task that God had for them specific to those moments. Here, Jesus is not anointed by a representative. He's not in Represent, he's not anointed by a leader. He's anointed by God Himself. And He's not anointed with symbolic oil. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a very high point. If you can just imagine, this is a high point in the ministry of Jesus. The Father affirms Him vocally. The Spirit anoints Him uh, with the anointing to do the work. And those who have gathered have, have witnessed an historical and significant moment. That happened. Secondly, the genealogy of Jesus found in Luke 3, 23 to 38. Like you when I was younger, and maybe like you now, I didn't like reading the genealogies in Scripture. To me, they were boring. They were pointless. Was there a word count, and they just had to fill the paper with stuff? I don't know. I didn't like it. I've since discovered that the opposite is actually true. That the genealogies specifically of Jesus are critically important to God's message. Now, there's some unique characteristic about Luke's genealogy, where he puts it, the order he puts it in, and who he includes in it that tie directly to the testing of Jesus. When you read historical biographies, 
things were placed in certain locations for a specific purpose. So if you're reading Matthew's gospel, and Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, he places the genealogy of Jesus in the very first chapter, and he does this for a reason. Because he's writing to these Christian Jews, he wants to confirm for them and all who would read after them that Jesus is the long-awaited seed of Abraham that was promised to the Jewish nation. And so he begins with Abraham, and he works his way down from Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, he works his way down to Jesus. And he does it from the very outset. Before he does anything else, he wants us to see Jesus is the legitimate Messiah. He does that. Luke places his genealogy in chapter 3. And not only does he put it three chapters in, but he starts with Jesus. And he ends with Adam, not Abraham. And he also positions it just before the account of the testing and test, uh, of temptation of Jesus, and he does it for a reason. Now, I want you to notice that when he refers to Adam, he calls him the Son of God, small s, because God created him. He was the Son of God. The last name that we hear, the last name that we read before we read about the testing of Jesus, is Adam. And there's a reason for that. Jesus is about to enter into severe testing. And we're reminded at this moment that Adam too faced testing. But he failed. Now we're going to note in future weeks that the approach and the pattern that Satan used with Adam is the same pattern and approach that he attempted with Jesus. But with Adam, the result was sin. The result was fallen humanity. It was a broken world. It was sickness and disease and death and pain. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks about there being two Adams, the first Adam and Jesus, who is the second Adam. And so Luke wants us to see here in strategically putting this where he did and stating it the way that he did, Luke wants us to see before we read about the testing of Jesus that the first Adam failed, but the second Adam will not fail. The small S, Son of God, failed, but the big S, Son of God, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, will succeed. This is a new beginning. It's a new day. Jesus is about to succeed where Adam did not. What was broken under the sin of Adam will be repaired under the unshakable commitment of Jesus. Jesus will restore hope. Jesus will have authority over sickness and pain and disease and death. Jesus will bring a promise of a perfect future. Through the cross... Jesus will not only establish God's kingdom, but redeem all creation. He will fix what Adam's sin had broken. He will restore what sin had destroyed. This testing of Jesus is very important to the testing story. 
because it shows us his commitment to the mission of God in overcoming the test. Luke leads us into this significant event with the echoes of Adam's failure framing what's about to happen next. Thirdly, the leading of the Spirit. Every time I read these verses, I can't help but think how I would have written the story of Jesus differently. I just, I'm reminded of it every time I read it. I just look and I think, really? See, I would have done that different, God. I would have done that different. Let's start with Lazarus. Let's raise him. Then let's feed 10,000 people and have a party celebrating the life of Lazarus. And then just show everybody that we can walk on water at the end of the night. I mean, that's a good first day. Right? That'd be a good first day. So start with a bang. But it doesn't happen that way. The Scripture we read this morning, Luke 4.1, tells us what happens next. After this incredible anointing, this baptism, this, this genealogy, and this exciting high point in Jesus' life, what happens? We're told that He is led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, that's exciting. Where's He leading Him? Where's the Holy Spirit going to take Him? To the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, I want us to notice here, and it's really important, that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that's leading Jesus. This is not a trick of the devil that, to get Jesus somewhere he shouldn't be. Jesus is in the wilderness because the Spirit led him to the wilderness. That's why he's there. The devil will do the testing but it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the leading. Now, it's important for us to understand testing in the biblical context. God allows tests like these, and His purpose is approval. His, his purpose is to, for there to be a demonstration of the commitment of His people to Him. And so Satan tests for a different reason. He wants those who are called by God and appointed by God and are led by God to sin and to fail and to become distracted along the way. But I want us to see here that this testing that we're reading about this morning is God-ordained. It's God-ordained. Jesus has been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, it's important for us to note something in the language here. The word in does not mean just to it. That the Spirit led him, and okay, now you're here, I'm done. The Holy Spirit is not just leading Jesus to the wilderness, to the testing, to the temptation. The language to means throughout. So the Spirit is leading Jesus throughout. Luke is trying to emphasize here that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus all throughout the temptation. He's with Him all through it. Now we see some extremes here. We've quickly gone from baptism the voice of God, the dove, the miraculous, the supernatural empowering, 
And now we see him being led into a time of severe testing and trial by the same Holy Spirit that has empowered him. So, these things set the context, lead up to the time of severe and difficult testing. But I believe there are some observations that we can draw from this time leading up to the testing of Jesus. And I believe these observations give us some important insight and give us some important encouragement as we face testing in our own individual lives on a day-to-day basis. Highs and lows. Jesus quickly moved from the excitement of his baptism to the challenge of severe testing. And if you haven't noticed already, a point will come when you will notice that our lives most often follow that same pattern. We go from blessing to battle. We go from feeling close to God to feeling like God is so far away. We go from moments of victory to moments of severe testing. We go from triumph to trials. We see in 1 Kings 18, Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal. He calls fire down from heaven. It's a powerful moment. And one chapter later in chapter 19, he's afraid of Jezebel and wants to die because he's so discouraged. That's the pattern of life for us as followers of Jesus. There will be highs and lows in our walk with God. Moments of blessing, moments of victory, moments of triumph. Moments when we're overflowing with joy and you just think it just can't get any better because God is so real in our lives and He feels so close and and all the good things are happening. But these moments will quickly turn to battles and testing and trials and pain and discouragement and disappointment and loss. There will be days when you're going to want to quit. There are going to be days when you feel like you can't go any further. There's going to be days when God will feel like he's a million miles away. Days that you're going to feel like you're all alone, even though he said he'd never leave you. And it's in these moments that we need to be reminded that low points, struggles, testing are every bit as important to our faith and commitment to Jesus as the high points are. They're every bit as important. In fact, I would even go as far to say as they're more important. Jesus shows us here, if we are faithful in the difficult times, God will bring us through by the power and help of His Spirit. Secondly, whoops, the overcomer. We serve a Savior who knows what it means to be tested, yet overcome and be victorious. He's our standard. He's our pattern. And because of that, Jesus has authority over all the details and all the challenges of our lives. And we share in His authority. Jesus said, I'm giving you my authority. You share in my authority. And so we're reminded this morning that we can overcome the enemy in our own lives if we trust in Jesus because he's the one who first overcame the enemy and it's his authority that allows us to do the same. We're not fighting in hope 
that maybe, just maybe, there might be victory? As followers of Jesus, we fight from a position of victory. Jesus has already won the victory. We're already victorious. We too will overcome because the Bible says we are overcomers. That's who we are. There are many tests that seem to be bigger than we are. There are many days when the enemy seems to be winning. There are a lot of days when it looks like we're losing. There are days when our prayers feel like they're falling on deaf ears. That we're praying to a God who just doesn't answer. But we need to be reminded that we walk by faith, not by sight. We cling to the truth of God's word. We trust in God in times of difficulty, in his timing, and in his plan. Recently, I, because of the circumstances in our, in our family, I get frequent calls from family members. It's really heightened the phone communication. Not my favorite thing, I might add. But the most common question asked to me is this. Are you okay? Are you okay? And this is the answer I give every time. Because I believe most of my family are not believers, so this is a great opportunity for God to do something in their lives. But my answer is sincerely this, and I've said this to every single one of them. A faith worth having is a faith that's real in hard times It's a faith that's as real in hard times as it is in good times. If you're going to have faith that only works in the good times, why would you want faith at all? Who has time for that? And so we're reminded today that any faith worth having is just as real when your marriage is this far from crumbling as it is when you're the happiest people on earth. Any faith worth having it's just as real when, you're, when, you're, when you get that diagnosis that you don't know how long you have to live, or maybe you do, as it is when you feel completely healthy. A faith worth having is just as real when, you're, when your kids' lives are a mess as they are when your family was this perfect little family. A faith worth having is just as real when you've lost a loved one as it was when you had everybody around you. Because a faith worth having is a faith that's just as real in the hard times as it is in the good times. And the reason we can make that statement and hold that faith and live that way is because we're overcomers. We are overcomers. He has overcome. And because he has, we will too. Thirdly, leading of the Spirit. When we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, the Holy Spirit leads and guides our lives. Now, we may not always be happy where the Spirit leads us, but there's an important truth here. The Holy Spirit doesn't just lead us to the times of testing. The Holy Spirit leads us during the time of testing and through the time of testing. Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, He would lead us into all truth, the right way, to the will of God, to our best interests. 
And I don't know about you this morning, but I counted a privilege to consider myself to be a part of this group of believers who dare to believe that there's a Holy Spirit that guides our lives, that there's a Spirit that empowers our lives, that there's a Spirit who creates environments where miracles can happen in the day and age that we live in. I count it a privilege to consider myself to be a part of a group of believers that are crazy enough to believe that. That we're not left to attempt to navigate this world with all of its challenges on our own. But there's one who comes alongside, one who comforts us, one who cares for us, one who leads us and sustains us and delivers us. Folks, we may feel alone. We may feel like God has abandoned us. We may feel like no one cares. But I want you to know this morning, that's not true. That's not true. We may feel that way, but it's not true. As followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is always leading us. And He not only leads us to the trial, to the test, He leads us through the test. I'm going to invite Tyler and the worship team to come back. Folks, there's an enemy whose desire is to destroy, deceive, distract us from God's mission. But I want to remind us this morning that we can overcome the enemy through the authority of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit in our lives. There's going to be highs and lows, but God is always faithful. And because Jesus overcame, we're going to overcome too. And the Holy Spirit's not just going to lead us to times of testing, but He's going to be right there with us all through those times of testing. Because if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we really need to be completely committed to the mission of Jesus unshakable, regardless of what comes our way, regardless of how it looks, regardless of how painful it might be, I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm convinced that this is true. I'm convinced that it is right. I'm convinced that it is the best and the only way, and I'm going to live it regardless. I'm going to be unshakable.